within our church community, we have a variety of people and you all work a variety of different jobs. Some are traditional, some are untraditional. Some, t- some of you are in between jobs and that's okay. But what I hope in bringing this up, I hope that a few of you will volunteer to tell us your name and what you do. And if you're watching online in the chat room, uh, feel free to let us know who you are and what you do for a job or for work, whether that's traditional or untraditional. So who wants to go first and telling us where you work or what you do? We have Brianna works at Hy-Vee as an assistant manager in the bakery. We have Adam, master's student. That is like five jobs, right? Yeah. One more. Yes. Nicole, the data management specialist. I love it. It is awesome. So I'm, that's what some of these guys do in the room. I'm interested in reading uh, online this week what you guys put down. Now, those jobs are kind of, you know, not terribly unusual. You're grad school, managing a bakery department, working uh, with computers. Those are kind of more usual jobs. But I was looking up and I found some pretty unusual jobs. So for any of you guys considering a career change, perhaps you should consider becoming a line stander. You know, you can get paid to be a professional person who stands in line for the people who don't want to wait. They have more money than time and they will hire a professional to stand in line and queue for other people. How's that for a job? You just got to stand in line every September at the Apple store to get the new thing, right? But if that's not your uh, kind of area of passion, you can become a golf ball diver. I'm thinking about this maybe. Just kidding. I, I wouldn't want to scuba dive. I didn't like that. I tried it once. But if you do enjoy scuba diving, if you do enjoy being outdoors, then you might be a perfect candidate for this unusual job. Golf ball divers are responsible for collecting golf balls that they find at the bottom of ponds and courses. Judd is keeping these guys in business in Dane County single-handedly. Single-handedly. This last one is super weird. You can get paid to feel faces. You can pay the feel faces. Face feelers, as they are sometimes known, work for skincare companies. They don't produce the prod products, but they feel the faces of people who are trying different products and they tell you if there's improvement or if there was no improvement. So kind of a specialized skill. But you know what would be worse than uh, being a face feeler would be the person having your face feeled, right? Like that. They better get paid more. That's all I'm saying with them. Now, I bring up your jobs. I bring up unusual jobs because in today's passage in Hebrews, we're going to actually talk about the job description of, and I know this is going to blow you away. You're going to just die from the anticipation of knowing this information, but we're going to talk about the job description of the high priest in the Old Testament. So last week, we started a new series called Losing My Religion, and we began by talking about and declaring, as the writer of Hebrews does, that Jesus is the new and better high priest. And we talked about the implications of that. But what does it really mean when we say Jesus is the new high priest? And better yet, what did it mean to the original people who were hearing this for the first time? What did the author of Hebrews have in mind when they say that Jesus is this new high priest? better high 
priest. And so if you want to follow along in your Bibles or in your smartphones uh, using the Bible app, you can go to Hebrews and we're beginning chapter five today. And we're going to study today's passage, uh, 10 verses in three parts. So it'll be three parts. That's where we're heading. The first section, we're going to talk about the universal principles, the job description of the high priest. And um, then we'll be told yet again that Jesus has been appointed as the high priest into that position or job. And then part three will tell us why Jesus was qualified. And at the end, if I do my job well today, I will tell you why you should care about this and why it all matters for those of us who are trying to lose our religion. So beginning in verse one in Hebrews chapter five, we read every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people and their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. Now, there was a time, let me just point out kind of a sidebar issue. There was a point that this was a gender-specific job in the Old Testament, that you had to have been a male to be the high priest. Now, as we've come to read in the New Testament, we see that men and women are equally called for all positions. It's not based on gender. It's based on the God who gives out gifts. And so um, in this new world, we would be using um, different pronouns, he or she or they or them. But in this passage, when we're referring to a document that was written two or three or 4,000 years before Jesus, um, we got to understand that it, it was a man at that point. Now, the author goes into those details about what it was to be a priest, what the rule was, what you needed to do. And the first thing they say is that this high priest was to come from the people. The high priest was to come from the community of people. They were one of them. They weren't bringing out an outsider, someone else from somewhere else to do this. It would have come from within the community right there. And then that one person would have been elevated by God to the special role. We see that the role of high priest is to represent the people to God. That's the second kind of um, sentence there. We see that the high priest was to represent the community. They were one person, but they represented the higher, the rest of the community to God, especially through offerings and gifts. And again, we talked about a little bit last week, how uh, you and I, normal people, we wouldn't have had really the kind of access to God that the high priest would have. The, The high priest had a special access to God. And so here we see that again, where that theme of the high priest who has special access to God is going in there to offer sacrifices, to offer offerings to God, to make them right with God. He goes in between God and the people to make sure that the community was in good standing. And that began with him. He himself wasn't sinless. He also made mistakes. So the high priest had the first uh, make an offering or sacrifice for him to make himself right before he could offer another sacrifice for the rest of the community. Sounds complicated. It is complicated. Several books in the Old Testament are dedicated to the exact uh, procedures that they needed to do to be made right with God. Now we see that the high priest's uh, weaknesses allowed him to better deal 
with people. Now, what does this mean? It's actually quite interesting here because when we break down this uh, sentence in Greek, it's referring to one's anger toward people who are far from God. So the priest was not to be angry toward people who were far from God. They're supposed to be understanding. The priest needed to understand that the priest himself is weak, has weaknesses, could fall, could become wayward, just like anybody else. And you were not to be angry toward those people, toward those people who are not yet a part of the community of God. And finally, we read that God appoints the high priest. It wasn't an open position posted on monster.com. This wasn't something that you could just say, hey, you know, when I grow up, I'd really like to be a high priest. Heard the benefits are awesome. The pay is okay. But, you know, I get a lot of honor in the society. So let's go do this. That wasn't ever an option. You wouldn't ever have an interview. You don't get hired. It was in some ways a promotion, but it wasn't a promotion you applied for. God would come to you. He'd let you know if you got the job or not, if he wanted you for it. And this was very counterintuitive for the Roman Empire. So this letter is being written in the first century after Jesus, but in the Roman Empire. And it's really different than what you and I are used to. Once every two years in our country, we elect people, right, to office, congressmen and women, senators, the president. And back in that day, in the Roman Empire system, very similar, they would get to vote on who they wanted to be their high priest for their area. They would look at resumes, people would apply for the jobs, they would study, they would show their religious merits on why they would deserve to be the high priest, and then people would vote on it and they would become a high priest. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is kind of pushing against culture a little bit just to say, hey, remember now, okay, I know times were a little, are a little different now, but back then God appointed priests and God's still doing it. He didn't stop appointing priests. And so then when it comes to Jesus, Why is the writer of Hebrews going into all of this, which is so well documented in the Old Testament? Well, because as he moves us away from religion and into relationship, away from being legalistic to having a life-giving relationship with the Messiah, he's bringing it back or she's bringing it back to Jesus. Jesus was taken amongst us from amongst you and I by becoming human. Jesus didn't just come to earth all sparkly and heavenly and spiritual and say, okay, bada bing, bada boom, you know, abracadabra, whoosh, all taken care of. Jesus comes to us as a human, as a baby, in a manger, surrounded by farm animals. Jesus knew what it was like to get tired. And in that way, just like the priesthood, he knew what it was like to have weaknesses that allowed him to better understand people. Jesus got hungry. And anybody who knows what it's like to be hungry or tired, we can probably and reasonably conclude that at times Jesus was irritable, right? He faced weaknesses just like you and I did. He got stomach bugs. Jesus had body odor. If he fell to the ground, he would have scraped his knees and blood. And it was because Jesus was human, becoming like us, that he can relate to us just as the high priest was supposed to thousands of years before Jesus did. And we see that Jesus was also chosen by God, reading in verse 5. That is why Christ did not honor himself. By assuming he could become a high priest, he understands that this was not a position that he could apply for. No, he was chosen by God. He was appointed. God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. 
And in another passage, God said to him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now we'll talk more about Melchizedek later because he, he's going to come up a lot more in chapter seven. So I don't want to focus that on today, but that's probably you're like, who is that? We'll talk about that in a few weeks, but Jesus wasn't just chosen for the job because he was the son of God. He wasn't just picked like, Hey, there you go. This is your, your job. Have at it. Do good. You know, make us proud out there, son. We see that his appointment to the high priesthood was one of suffering, one of obedience, and one of perseverance. We read in verse seven, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings and with a loud cry and with tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. And even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. And he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, unlike being born into royalty, um, Jesus wasn't born into royalty. He didn't grow up being served. Jesus didn't grow up being honored. If you were born to a king or queen, you're a prince or a princess, you're going to live life very differently in today's world than you would if you were born out in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. Correct? And so that's the contrast we're seeing here right now, is that we're saying that just because he's heaven, heavenly royalty, he wasn't just given some special platform, some easier way. He wasn't just given to him that the road to priesthood for Jesus was one paved with suffering. And yet he was obedient, which required him to persevere. And the author of Hebrews, again, he did it last week or she did it last week. They did it last week, but they do it again this week. They're alluding to the scene in which Jesus is in the garden and he's praying. And he prays to God, please take this cup of suffering away from me, but not my will and your will. And this for the author of Hebrews is such a pivotal scene because it reveals so much about the gospel that Jesus was really like you and I, that Jesus was really tempted, that Jesus really had weaknesses, that there were things that Jesus didn't necessarily want to do, but that he did anyway. And he was able to do that because he was a person of prayer. Jesus depended on God. Through prayer, he needed God's help. Jesus isn't just a high priest. He isn't just a new high priest. Understand that by Jesus being ushered into the priesthood, that God demolishes the system of priesthood. We don't need priests anymore because we have one high priest in Jesus. The old system is gone. The system of religion is done. And we've now have the chance to all encounter God through a relationship with Jesus. Now this brings us to a challenge. And the challenge is, is that if we want to lose our religion, we need to seek God's will in our lives above all else. To lose my religion, I need to seek God's will in my life above everything else. 
earlier this week, uh, it was Thursday morning, my son, Elijah, he is three. Uh, he decided that he didn't want to go to school on Thursday. Now he only, the kid only goes to school two days a week. So it's preschool. It's not a big deal. And the reason that Elijah did not want to go to school is because of the 10 hours that Elijah will be at school. One hour, they make all the kids lay down and take a nap. And Elijah hates that one hour of rest so much. He's willing to give up the other nine hours of play. And he was so serious on Thursday morning. We said, no, you got to go to school, man. It's it's not, this isn't a debate. You're not sick. You got to go. And uh, a moment later, we heard his bedroom door slam shut and we heard it lock. Now we just bought this house in June and I have not had a chance to take the very strong, questionably strong lock off of his door. And it's a big door too. And so at first we knew that we were in a battle of wills here. And uh, at first we tried to reason with him. Come on, Elijah, come out. Like, let's talk about this. You want a snack? You want a fruit snack? Trying to a little bribery, you know, trying to just do anything we could to get him to come out of the room. When that didn't work, we went to the other end of the spectrum. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. We threatened his life. Okay, we didn't really threaten his life. But to him, we did, because we told him if he did not come out of this room, we were going to take away his tablet for the day. And to a three-year-old, screen time is next to godliness. It really is. There's no, and he still didn't come out. He said, nope, bribery, nope, threats, nope, not coming out, not going to school, not taking a rest. Megan did try to break into the room. I did not try. I knew that was not going to work. Not because I'm like Mr. Macho Manly and I know all things. I just was like, this door is questionably strong. (laughs) So I don't know what the past owners had in there. And finally, I tried to come back to Elijah to reason with him again, to deescalate the situation. And yes, like a professional FBI negotiator, I deescalated it. And after a 30-minute standoff, my son came out of the room. And I was victorious, sort of. Megan was late to work that day. Oliver was late to school that day. And I was late to a meeting I had. (laughs) Now, this is a silly example, but in a lot of ways, when it comes to God's will in our lives and my will, we're often like Elijah. A lot more than we maybe want to admit. See, when God tells us to do something that we don't want to do, we go into our room, we shut the door, we lock it. Now, because God is a heavenly father and a perfect father, he's not Stephen or Megan, God won't try to break the door down and he won't threaten your life. But God will continue to knock, to reason with you and to get you to come out of the room. Now, when we do this, when we lock ourselves in the room, just like Elijah, we may not understand that we are hurting other people by doing it. Elijah didn't understand the concept that his mom would be late for work, that his dad would be late for a meeting, that his brother would be late for school. And oftentimes when we lock ourselves in the room and God is trying to reason with us, we may not realize it, but we are hurting other people in the house. To make matters worse, if you grew up in or around the church, you may spiritualize this. You may say, I'm just like Jesus. There are things that I don't want to do. I know God is telling me to do it. And so I pray, I'm like, God, I don't want to do this, but let your will be done, not my will. And you might actually pray that, hoping that God's will is your will. And when God's will isn't your will, you stomp off to the bedroom. And all of a sudden you did this whole like spiritual showing of like, God, your will be done, not mine. And then God said, okay, great, go do that. And you're like, no, <laughs> no, this, 
God, conform to my will. My will be done. (laughs) And we get ticked off. And so this challenge of seeking God's will above everyone else's is super duper challenging. So how are you going to do this? Well, first, and I know it might sound simple, but it's about praying a very specific type of prayer. We see in the Lord's prayer, when Jesus starts talking about, here's how you should pray. When the disciples say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus starts by saying, pray that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And when Jesus, when faced with his greatest temptation and he doesn't want to go through with it, he prays, God, let your will be done. And as such, you and I, when we go to God in prayer, whether it's in this place or at home or in the car right home or wherever it is that you're praying in our regular prayers, part of our regular mantra should be asking for God's will to be done in your life and to help you like it. Because oftentimes there's a conflict, there's a tension between what I want and what God wants. And so while it's one thing to pray for God's will in my life and then get upset when God's will isn't my will and the stomp off, I can begin to pray that God conform my heart to yours. God, help me understand your will. God, help me trust that your will, your plan is better than mine. God, help me to have faith that you can see things that I can't see. And that you really do want what's best for me. You want what's best for me more than I want what's best for me. And so we continuously pursue God in prayer in every moment of our lives, in the ordinary and the extraordinary and everything in between. But we seek God out. We say, let your will be done. And we look for God in the ordinary. And that was just a little something that we alluded to last week that we covered a lot in the bonus uh, content of the podcast this week. But if we're going to be these types of people who seek God's will in our lives above all else, we have to seek God in the ordinary, between the mountaintops and between the valleys, which means when we come in and we approach our schedules, it's not just, I'm going to church on Sunday night. I mean, that's great. I'm not trying to insult that or anything. And I recognize that. But to really turn over your entire schedule to God, what would that look like? What would it look like to say, God, what do you want me to do at 6.30 a.m. tomorrow morning? Or just 6.30 a.m. in general? Or at noon? God, how do you want me to use my lunches this week? You're not going to figure it all out. Okay, that's the warning. You're not going to figure it out all this week. But as you begin to make your schedule, this ordinary document that dictates how you spend your time, are you seeking God first in that? Or do you kind of insert him in the spaces? When it comes to another important document, your, your uh, budget, are we seeking God after the fact, after the taxes, after we get paid, after I buy the new TV or the whatever, get the car fixed, whatever it might be, and whatever I have left over, here you go, God, here's a little bit, you know, a tip, a spiritual tip to you. Thanks for, you know, everything. Or do we say, God, in my budget, tell me how you want to spend everything. And when I say this, I run the risk of people hearing me say, you should tithe. And I think you should. We're pretty upfront about that. I mean, we'll talk about that in one of our courses um, to be a member at the church. We'll talk about tithing. But I'm not just talking about tithing tonight. I'm talking about the other 90%. Because if you are every day going to Starbucks and getting a triple venti soy pumpkin spice latte and you're running up an $11 bill and and your Starbucks budget's almost $500 a month, 
I don't know if that's the best way to use the money that God is giving you. Like God is investing in you and pouring cash into your life as a, and he's saying, manage this, steward it, be a good investment for me. It's not just about the 10% you give back, but what about the other 90%? It's not just about the hour you go to church and the schedule. It's about the other six days of the week. And so as we seek God's will in our lives, we are constantly praying, God, let your will be done in my life. So when God says, I want you to do more than just Sunday nights, we say, okay, Less of me, more of you, your will in my life. Help me like that. When God says, I want you to give, or I want you to spend less on overdraft fees next month. We say, okay, yes, God, your will. So one of the big transitions here that we're going to make when it comes um, between the religious kind of setting of the Old Testament and the priesthood, um, one of the transitions that we see is that the priest went and represented the people to God. And in this passage, the passage we talked about today, what we see is that Jesus represents God to us now. Rather than having one person who comes to God, we have a God who comes to all of us. And Jesus is that high priest. It's profound. It's extraordinary. It's difficult to understand and always put together. And it's time to lose your religion. It's time to follow Jesus, because following Jesus is way better than Christianity. And so let's seek God's will above all else, even when we don't feel like it. Let's seek him out.